treatments. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much just for um, the privilege and the honor it is to come before your throne, um, the God of the creator of the universe, God, who um, made us and who knows us and who loves us, God. Um, I thank you for your word and the privilege it is to be able to read and to grain, gain a better understanding of you through your word. May today's teaching of your word give us greater knowledge of you and your grace in our lives. I pray that we will be like James in understanding that our lives are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. We, like James, our servants are the one who created us and sustain us. May we also understand that this same God who created us offered us offers us life and forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the leadership of our church who seeks to honor you through the sound teaching of your word. I pray specifically today for Matt that you will be with him as he teaches. Please give him clarity of mind and speech. And may your gospel be clearly proclaimed. And finally, I pray that through the hearing of your word, it will take root in our hearts and your spirit will enable us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, God. I pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. See you here this morning. I guess the only thing I'm missing is a gold tie or a <laughs> gold uh, coat. So uh, that was not planned. So uh, I have no dog in that fight. So. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be covering uh, each time I have opportunity to to speak. We're going to be going through a book, and it's going to be the book of James. Uh, I'm excited about it. It kind of gives me a framework to work from. Each time I get asked to preach, um, I'm wondering, okay, what am I going to speak on this time? What, what, what should I? And it, this kind of really just helps me to know if we're going to be going through the book of James. And uh, it, it's a great book. And as Jessica read this morning, she read verse 1. And we're actually going to cover half of verse 1 this morning. And you're probably wondering, I don't think we're going to make it through the book of James. <laughs> um, but I can assure you next time we'll at least cover one verse. So uh, we'll get there, and uh, but there's a lot in the book of James and the introductory part and just honestly in verse 1. Uh, the key of understanding the rest of the book is, I believe, understanding verse 1. And we'll dive into that as we progress and as we go along. Uh, the Bible dwells on two prominent themes all the way through the 66 books within its covenant. The two major themes are the way to God and our walk with God. And whenever you pick up a Bible and read it seriously, you should ask yourself, is this talking about the way to God or is it telling me how to walk with God? The first major theme is directed to the lost man called in Scripture, the one who is dead, the dead sinner, and God alerts him through his word how to come to know him through Jesus Christ. God tells him the way to God. But surprisingly, throughout the, the Bible, a greater part of the Bible is talking about those who he calls saints or Christians. And it tells him how to walk with the God he has come to know. The book of James, as you expect, is a book on the latter theme. And it talks about 
our walk with God. And in my opinion, it talks about it in a way that no other book in the Bible, perhaps other than the book of Proverbs. And some have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And if you ever want to, uh, to, to keep busy, uh, do a task that will keep you busy, try to outline the book of James. And if you get that done, you're ready to outline the book of Proverbs, because they're very similar in that regard. The name of Jesus only appears twice in the letter of James. There, there's no mention of Christology. There, there's no uh, uh, crucifixion or resurrection of the Lord, no doctrines of grace. There is nothing like that mentioned in James. You may be thinking, well, what kind of book is that? Well, the reformer Martin Luther wondered the same thing. And he had his doubts. He didn't really like the book of James. He called it a right strawy epistle. But something I think he failed to realize is that James isn't written to establish the doctrines of our faith. It is, isn't even written as a defense of the truth. It's a practical book, and it assumes that you know the doctrine, and it drives home the importance of living like you know the truth. The Apostle Paul most often deals with what we believe, but James is going to deal with how we behave. He literally leaves no stone unturned. It is as if he determines to miss nothing. He doesn't just come into the living room of our lives where we have been expecting company and everything is dusted and vacuumed. Just don't look in the coat closet. No, James is going to look in every closet. He's going to rifle through every drawer. He's going to pry into our private lives and even go to have the audacity to examine our checkbooks to tell us, improve our true priority. He's going to listen to our prayer request list and comment on what we're really after. In other words, there's one great question in mind of James, and it is this. If you say that you believe like you should, then why do you behave like you shouldn't? If you say you believe like you should, then why do you behave like you shouldn't? This is the question all through the book of James. James Bun or John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this, The soul of religion is the practical part. John Wesley, the founder of Methodist in the late 1800s, wrote, The problem of all problem is, problems is getting Christianity put into practice. That's why you have 54 imperatives and 54 prescriptions by Dr. James. While most examinations, physical examinations, are concerned with how you are growing old, James is concerned on how or whether or not you are growing up in the faith. And so, we're going to cover most of verse 1 today, and I want to look at three things this morning. The first, I want you to notice James's signature. Whenever any of us uh, write a letter or an email... We usually sign it at the end. And whenever we receive a letter, we immediately go to the end to see who it's from. Well, it's custom in ancient times was to sign the letters in the beginning. The New Testament mentions five different men named James of who lived in the first century. If you research the, these men, you'll end up with really two good candidates of the authorship of the book of James. And... One of them is, is the Apostle James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. 
They were given the nickname by Jesus in Mark 3.17 as the sons of thunder. This particular James, however, uh, during the, was, was the first of the twelve apostles martyred in A.D. 44, which rules him out of being the author of this little book, which concludes in what many scholars believe is true, that the author of James was indeed the half-brother of Jesus. But that being said, something drastically happened in his life. Had to have happened. Because James was not always on board with Jesus. He never saw eye to eye with Jesus growing up. And you can imagine, he was the perfect child. Whenever someone got in trouble and always blamed James, Jesus was never called out. And then as he was going on, matter of fact, Matthew's gospel informs us that Jesus began his ministry and none of his siblings believed his claimed Messiah. In fact, more than unbelief, they were offended that he would make such a claim in Matthew 13, 55 through 57. Offended that he would dare call himself the Messiah. In Mark 3.21, it would go on to say that they would say that he's lost his senses, he's lost his mind. They would go around during Jesus' public ministry and say, can you believe this man? He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's lost his mind. What a joke. John, in his gospel, seven, chapter 7, verse 5, would say, for not even his brothers were believing in him. James wasn't even at the scene of Christ's crucifixion. None of his brothers or sisters were there. Only mother, his mother and a handful of other people can you imagine maybe the scene that happened in their home that evening? As they're maybe they're all gathered together and James is there with his brothers and sisters and he looks out and he thinks, what is mother doing? Out there on that hill, looks like there's a cloud coming, there's a storm coming, and Jesus is up there on that cross proving that he's not the Messiah. He wouldn't die a death like that. I can't believe that. Maybe something like that went on in their home during the time. I don't know, it isn't recorded. But... But what happened to James? Why now that we have this in canon of Scripture, we have the book of James, and he is now claiming that he is indeed God. Total transformation. What happened? Well, we don't have an account in Scripture of James's transformation, exactly what happened in his conversion. But what we do have is 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, in the beginning part of that, the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. God, Jesus, his, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, how we have hope, and that is the gospel, and how we have hope in that, and how he came back and he appeared with, with many, and many saw after his resurrection, Jesus. And in verse 7, it says this, and then he appeared to James. He appeared to James. Can you imagine that meeting? Can you imagine that conversation? I can only imagine maybe it, was, maybe it was something similar to Thomas, doubting Thomas, who would not believe until Jesus came back after the resurrection and met him. And what did Thomas say? He said, Jesus Christ, he says, my Lord and my I don't know, maybe something like that was similar in the life of James and his conversion after meeting Jesus because James was different after that. 
he would go on to, to pastor one of the largest churches, if not the largest church in Jerusalem. He, he also would go on and author, be the author of the book of James, what we're looking at tonight, this morning in the canon of Scripture. He also would be a martyr for Christ and would die around 60, or A.D. 62 by a horrific death of stoning. By the way, for those of you who wish you'd become a Christian earlier in your life and you're troubled by the time, the way you've wasted your life not being a Christian, can you imagine what James could have regretted? For years he had eaten at the same table, shared the same house, played in the same backyard, slept in the same room, attended the same synagogue school, and wrote out the same Hebrew homework and watched the development of his amazing older brother who never seemed to do anything wrong. And it was all lost on him. Listen, he could have lived the rest of his life in bitter regret. But the truth of Christ's resurrection changed everything, just as it has for you. So don't miss the significance of this signature that begins James 1, verse 1. It symbolizes the radical transformation of a man who had once laughed at Christ, but now lived for Christ. And may your signature symbolize the same. Whenever people read your name, may they think as someone who loves and lives for Jesus Christ. So we see his signature. Uh, next, I want us to look at his status. His signature reveals to us his, his identity, and his status is going to reveal to us his priority. Notice what it says. James, the Lord's half-brother. Let me try that again. James, the chairman of the Jerusalem Council who directed the development of church to welcome Gentiles from every nation. What about James, the man who grew up in the same house with Jesus, the Messiah? Or James, one of the few who received a personal visit from the resurrected Lord? All of these certainly are statements are true, but none of them are mentioned. Only this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James says, you want to know what my highest privilege in life is? I am a servant of God. The Apostle Paul would refer to James as the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19. But James preferred to speak of himself as a servant. The word servant in the text is the word that we get doulos, which literally means slave. The verb, the verb adulos means to bind. James then is bound in Christ as a slave is bound to his master. Success in life was not serving. It was having servants. But Paul would refer to both he and Timothy as slaves in Philippians 1. Peter preferred he, himself as well in, in, in 2 Peter 1 as a slave as well as Jude in the first verse of his letter. For the genuine believer, the word says it all. Doulos communicates ownership, possession, allegiance, dependence, subjection, and loyalty. 
the reason the average Christian isn't applying the genuine faith found in the book of James is because he has replaced the idea of Christian surrendering to Jesus Christ as master with the idea if you come to Jesus, you're going to have your best life ever. If you're, it's going to be a wonderful life. One author, one, one author wrote this, Jesus Christ is now a coach with a good game plan. His source of empowerment, a helper of the morally sensitive to become better. Christ came to improve our existence and he is a resource for what we have already decided we want. And so we sell Christianity with a message that people really ought to try Jesus because life's great with Jesus. So people try Jesus out until they hit a bump in the road. And they say, hey, I thought you said he had a wonderful plan for my life. Bankruptcy isn't wonderful. Sickness isn't wonderful. A cheating spouse isn't wonderful. The death of a child isn't wonderful. Suffering persecution for Christ isn't wonderful. I guess Jesus really isn't working out. See, the reason the average church in America has stopped studying the book of James is because they can't get past verse 2 that talks about joy in trials. What kind of wonderful life is that? And they can't get past verse 2 because they have no conception of verse 1. Christianity is an invitation to become a slave to God. And He will own you. In fact... The very ingredient of salvation comes out of the first century slave culture. You have been chosen, Ephesians 1. You have been bought out of the slave market and you are no longer belong to yourself, 1 Corinthians 6. You are subject to his will and control, Philippians 2. You are called to give an account, 2 Corinthians 5. You are chastised and are rewarded by him, Hebrews 12. And one day you will hear the words, well done and good and faithful doulos. Well done, good and faithful slave, Matthew 25, 21. The gospel has become twisted to fit the autonomy of our human heart. The message today is that Christianity should be accepted because it's better than any other thrill ride on the planet. The truth is we need to proclaim the freedom from sin to those who are enslaved to sin And on the other hand, we need to declare that Christianity is an entirely different kind of slavery. I thought Paul really explains this well in Romans chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there or just listen, Romans 6, 16 and following says this. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to one whom you obey? either of sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves, to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time 
certain things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Here's the truth. Everyone is slave to something or someone. Everyone serves some master. The question is, whose slave are you? Gollum. That's a, that's a great name, right? Gollum is the slimmest character in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. If you are a true blue fan of the books, you know that originally its character was a hobbit named Smeagol. But his obsession in possessing the ring deformed him into Gollum, a name he got after his habit of making a horrible swallowing noise with his throat. After, or according to a collection of literary authorities, Smeagol still vaguely remembered things like friendship and love. While Gollum was a slave to the ring who knew only treachery and violence. As Aragorn states, his malice gives him a strength hardly to be imagined. This is precisely what happens to the people who are tangled or slave to sin. Their name might as well be changed because they have become what they live for. Their greatest strength becomes their capacity to sin. And as you move through verse 2 and throughout the book, the only thing that would ever challenge us to apply any of this is if we weren't reminded very first verse that we are not the masters of our life, but we are slaves to God. I mean, why would you ever allow God to change the way you talk or plan or spend your money or dream your dreams or relate to someone else or accept tribulation? Why would you ever do any of that for God? Well, you won't unless he owns you. Oh, we've noticed the signature, James's signature. We've noticed his status. And lastly, this morning, I want us to look at his Savior. This little book begins, James, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek New Testament, James does not include the definite and indefinite articles. He simply ties the, these titles together. So you more literally can translate this verse as James, the slave of Jesus Christ, God and Lord. This verse became one of the strongest texts describing the unity of the Godhead and the deity of Jesus Christ. He is called by James both God and Lord. In fact, in the 4th century, when Athanasius was defending the deity of Jesus Christ against the heresy of um, Arius, one whose teaching, among other heresies, was that Christ was a God, which, by the way, has been repackaged by the Jehovah Witness and Mormon's teaching. It was James chapter 1, verse 1, that Athanasius used to topple his argument and to deliver a blow of his false teaching. And then we have James writing this. A boy who grew up with Jesus. 
He grew up as a man into a man. And he saw that Jesus was no mere mortal. In fact, he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. Hudson Taylor was used uniquely and and mightily by the Lord in taking the gospel into the interior part of China in the 1800s. He was quiet, unassuming man who had walked with God and served God for 50 years in China. When he was in Australia, he was invited to speak at a large church, and when he arrived, it was standing room only, nowhere to sit. And the moderator introduced Hudson Taylor, now an old man with eloquent, well-chosen phrases as he referred to the mighty work and accomplishments of this missionary. He ended his introduction by referring to Taylor as our illustrious guest. Quietly, Mr. Taylor stood there for a moment and he said, Dear friends, I am a servant of an illustrious master. Sounds a lot like James. And it is my prayer as we go through the book of James that it would sound a lot more like us as well. A lot more like us each and every day. You know, when we stop to think about it, It truly is amazing that James came to know Christ. Here's someone who grew up with Jesus, shared life as you know it with him, through the good, through the bad, thought he was completely lost his mind. He didn't know what he was talking about. He deserved to die, claiming to be the Messiah. And after all of that, God in his sovereign grace would keep pursuing James. And may we never forget where we came from, how we were purchased by Christ out of the slave market of sin. We were given a new name, a new life, a new journey, a new home. And this is my prayer, sincere prayer, for those of you who are in here who have maybe never tasted to see that the Lord is good, never accepted Him as your personal Savior. If you're lost and your bondage of sin is serious in the sight of God, that you would see that. And there, were, and there is truly no true rest and peace in that. And God desires to set you free from sin and guilt and give you a new life that is only found through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. It truly makes no sense that you would choose to love us enough to give up 